This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, celebrating Reunion Weekend, where alumni have gathered to reconnect and learn. This is a special presentation of Dollars and Change with your hosts, Wharton Social Impact Initiative Managing Director, Cheryl Kuhlman, and Senior Director of Impact Investing, Nick Ashburn. Welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Working School on Sirius XM 111. I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And I'm Nick Ashburn. And we are here We, we are here for our special reunion show. We usually are, are live every Thursday morning, 8 to 10 a.m., but this time we are here with alumni in the midst of all the festivities and bringing alumni in to talk about social impact. Absolutely. Campus is so gorgeous right now. I mean, it's a little overcast today, but it's green. All It's decorated. Blues. Lots of blue and red. Lots of people. Yeah. Blue and red forever or red and blue forever. I can't remember <laughs> what our, our theme song is. Do that. So I want to give you just... Just a, a highlight of this uh, shortened live show. Um, our first guest who has joined us in the studio is Samra Heather, who is the National Director at the Center of Employment Opportunities. Then about quarter past the hour, Ashley Bittner from Owl Ventures. Um, Ashley was uh, an early um, participant in a number of Wharton Social Impact Initiative activities, and so we're delighted to bring her back. And then at the bottom of the hour, we will welcome Lori Nishura McKenzie of the Stanford University's Clayman Institute for Gender Research and the Stanford Center for Women's Leadership. And she'll be here as well. Actually, everyone's live. Often we have people calling in, but they're all, they're they're all, all here, here in studio. Now. So good. Samra, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, how long has it been since you've been back on campus? I think I think since my five year. Ah. So this is my ten year. So okay. yeah, it's been a while. So good. Welcome back. So tell us a little bit about what this Center for Employment Opportunities does. So we work exclusively with men and women coming home from incarceration and we're providing them employment services. So what we do, they come home within you know, come to us within ninety days of release and we employ them. So we run businesses throughout the country oh. across twenty offices. Um, we get them acclimated to the world of work quickly by working for us. But what we're trying to do is get them jobs outside of our organization, permanent employment. But that process that we do that has been evaluated to also show that it reduces recidivism. So we're this great sort of cost benefit to a lot of places. When you when you think about your time at Wharton <laughs> and, and to be running an organization like this and, and being so prominent there, I mean, what was that path like? And, and, you know, I don't think the Wharton Social Impact Initiative quite existed when you were here. No. Um, and But now we see a lot of social impact interest from the, the undergraduate and MBA students at Wharton. So just curious to hear more about your path to get there. Yeah, yeah, I know. And it's awesome to see everything that's happening. So when I, you know, I was a management consultant before business school, and I knew I wanted to go into sort of the nonprofit space after business school. But to me, I literally thought, oh, I'll be like CFO of the Red Cross. Like I had no idea what that meant. And when I was there, it was things were happening, but it was still, you know, maybe like 15 students out of a class of 800 who yeah. even slightly cared kind of about hiding this. in the corner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Cheryl, Cheryl's class of 2001. Yeah. So yeah. she has that very same much experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like, you know, the group that did care really, you know, it was great, but it was small. So there was an internship opportunity with an organization called REDF, and they are a venture philanthropy fund that – uh, funds biz- organizations like CEO that have uh, social purpose businesses that are aimed at employment. So they have actually a great MBA internship program that's very structured. It's it's not like, oh, you're just going to a random office. It's really um, you know, around leadership development. So I did that, which was very transformative for me because it kind of opened my eyes to a lot of different ways you can use your business background. You don't just have to think, oh, it has to be in finance or it has to be investing. And I think that's such an important point because, I mean, I think especially uh, when, when you were looking for jobs and internships, but even more so now, the innovation and the opportunities and different paths in are so profound. That used to be just, you know, I started off as a grant writer because <laughs> that that seemed to work, right? Right. Yeah. Well, and, and it sounds like, you know, when you were an MBA, you know, it, it was like, do I Go back to management consulting. Do I do finance? Probably like a lot of your peers. Or if I care about social impact, it's government or nonprofits. Right. Yeah. And Red F, at, especially at that point, pretty innovative and, and a yeah. different different model than you would normally think of. Definitely, definitely. And so I ended up being very lucky that I was able to get a job at Red F when I left uh, business school. So I did that for about five years. Um, opened our office in Los Angeles and really got much more in sort of a mission area space. 
And when I moved back to New York, I actually still thought, well, you know, maybe it's still more economic development. I don't actually care that much about the mission. It's more about the business side of it, whatever that means. And so I, <laughs> I took a job and I really missed like the, the mission impact, like helping people change their lives around. And so at CEO, this job opened up to run the national uh, enterprise. Um, and so I decided to take that and it's been great. And that's a, a very interesting um, awareness because I think a lot of people find the job satisfaction important. Yeah. And that sounds trivial, but it really is the case more and more people are saying it's it's something that I really want to, to hold on to. And I'm glad that there are more opportunities for uh, for finding that. So at CEO, what's your uh, what's give me an example of, of somebody who's sort of been really uh, the kind of poster child for this, the work that you're doing? Yeah, so I mean, we are working with, uh, actually, I can talk, we opened our Philadelphia office in 2016. So we work with, um, you have an office here. And so one of the uh, individuals who came to our program had been sentenced as a juvenile. So he was sentenced uh, for a life sentence uh, at the age of like 16. Wow. For actually being a accessory to murder. Mm. Um, recently, the state of Pennsylvania said that anyone who is sentenced for life as a juvenile, that's cruel and unusual punishment or something like that. And he has to be released. So this person who was sentenced at 16 in like 1985 is coming out needing to find a job. He doesn't, the internet, computers, you know, hearing the person on the bus tell you the stops, all that is very new to them. So he comes to us and what we're just trying to do is give him a soft landing into what it's, the expectations are going to be like. You know, you know, yes, we are employing them. We are providing real work, but we understand that there might be mistakes that happen. And so we're trying to get them both the confidence to do well in a job, but also help them with their resume, their interview prep, figure out what jobs they want. And so that's the type of person we have probably doesn't have any you know, education, little to none, um, uh, little to no work experience. So we're really dealing with a high-risk, high-need population. And so the, the kind of businesses that are employing these folks, so what, what are they? So the ones CEO runs are pretty, like, basic. They uh-huh. were, like, maybe cleaning up, you know, Locust Walk, like, providing sort of beautification services, litter abatement, some property mm-hmm, management. Mm-hmm. But the jobs we're getting them outside, especially with the economy sort of on the upswing are, you know, warehousing, construction, um, retail. And so we're seeing – I mean, it's still hard. These, you know, incarceration and poverty are very yeah. entrenched. But we are seeing more path to getting, you know, into, especially in sort of construction and, and that sector where it's more sort of friendly for people with convictions, that you actually can start out working at CEO at like a sort of lower wage and get up to, you know, $25 an hour, which, you know, is, is good advancement. And we had Carla Javits on from, she's a she's CEO like and mentor, president yeah. of Red F. And one of the things she had mentioned is that because they've been doing this so long and they had great success with the training and getting people adapted – they have partners who are willing to hire, right? So you kind of you have that soft launch into somebody who said, "I've worked with you before. I trust that somebody coming from your organization is going to be someone I can trust." Yeah, and Samra, I wanted to pick up sort of on that thread because I think for whether it's through dollars and change or our own work at the Wharton Social Impact Initiative, we've I feel like we've come across more and more organizations, nonprofit or businesses, that are really focused on employment for formerly incarcerated persons. So, what's the trend, or what do you see? there definitely um, a, a major trend happily a bipartisan trend like everyone understands that people are gonna be coming home and what we're trying to do is change the narrative these are not people who have this bad mark on their history these are people that can help your growth as a business that, that they are kind of economic tools that you can use and so we're seeing that a lot a lot of big companies signing pledges lots of states banning the box like you can't have a box about someone's criminal conviction so Definitely a lot of movement in the right direction, which is which is great for us. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We're talking with Samra Heather, who is a Wharton grad, 08, and National Director of the Center for Employment Opportunities. And so, you know, we talked a little bit about your background and thinking now about your role at um, CEO, the Center for Employment Opportunities. Um what is most exciting to you right now, you know, as the national director, this rollout? What, what's really exciting and um, sort of on the horizon for the organization? Yeah. Um, so we, you know, because uh, we are the largest national uh, reentry, employment reentry provider. So we're the, one of the few organizations that has evidence, you know, been rigorously evaluated to show that we work and that we can scale. And I've sort of been leading that scaling in a lot of ways. And so what's really exciting is people come to us, you know, we had had this strategic plan that we got to go, we're gonna have to knock on doors to try to grow. 
But really, it's been kind of easy people calling us to say, we want this in our city. We want this here. And so what's exciting is that there's there's a way that we could actually get and whether it's us providing TA to another organization, but potentially technical assistance. Techni- we, sorry. We, we like to break sorry. down the acronyms. Here. We could provide technical assistance in a smaller city, but could we potentially get to a place where, you know, there is a job through like CEO's transitional employment model for anyone coming home who wants to work like really. And that's a huge vision, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that one of the things, and, and Nick, it goes to your point, I think people are recognizing if you change the narrative and you stop thinking about people coming out of prison as, as a waste and a, and a danger returning right. back to the community instead as an asset that needs to be developed. It really is, it, it, it changes the sense about why this is important to do, right? It's not just preventing a negative, it's gaining a positive. Right. And so let's put our Wharton hats on for a second and think well, about, you know, <laughs> are you fully grant funded? What's the revenue business model for a CEO? Yeah, so so the work that we do, that's earned revenue. So we do not do free work. We work we try to partner with uh, it's mostly public sector agencies, but more and more the private sector to say you need a consistent workforce to do this work for you. So hire CEO. So that earned revenue we get from our social enterprise is usually about kind of 40-45% of okay. our budget. Then, you know, it sounds a lot of people think you don't want to get government funding, but for us government funding is actually a very stable consistent funding stream. So um, there's a lot of different types of government funding streams that we access. A, a big one is like um, SNAP, which is commonly known as food stamps, uh, has a lot of employment and training funding connected to it. Oh, and I that's actually that. a very kind of robust funding stream that isn't drawn down a lot. So we access things like that. So government funding um, usually represents another sort of 40, 45 percent. So then we're only trying to rely on philanthropy for about, you know, 10 to 15 percent of our budget. It's great. It's nice to have that, you know, mark from philanthropy, but we know it's not sustainable to accept, expect our entire um, sort of revenue stream to be coming from from philanthropy. And um, so we often talk about some of the kind of innovative and different approaches to financing and social impact bonds or pay for success. Has, has that been something your organization has been involved with or considered? Yeah, CEO is actually one of the first First organizations to undergo pay for success uh, project in New York State uh, through the Department of Labor. So, I think we're still in the middle of that. It, you know, it was good. It was hard, um, and yeah. not not you know it was because it's so much of it was about sort of the design of how you're going to actually track what's happening and. It just put a lot on us, and it's a lot of pressure. I, I think I think there's a world there's a there's a vision for pay for success that might be slightly tapered down, but still the spirit of sort of paying for outcomes, paying for performance, but maybe not so fancy and yeah. just sort of a little bit more straightforward. Well, and I think one of the things that I liked about the the pay for success model was the sense of the recognition that effective nonprofits spend a lot of time fundraising, right? Yeah. And if there's some way that you could free them from that, give them some revenue that they had some certainty about, then they could really dive down and do more of the good work that they're doing. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that we have a lot of success with um, pay for performance contracts. So in a lot of places, you know, we can't draw down the full amount of the money until we actually perform. And it's not, you know, it doesn't go through an evaluation. It still sort of outputs a little bit, but they're sort of more meaningful. Like, did you place people in jobs? So we have more of that. And so we, we, we like that for us. It's, it's a good kind of uh, performance metric to have. So I guess we don't have a ton of time left in, in this segment, but, you know, what are you most excited about being back on campus, connecting with people? What What's but exciting? Honestly, being on Dollars and being Change. Being on Dollars and Change. No, it exactly. is. I, I Honestly, it's true. You know, I, it makes me so happy. And with, even with Red F, I always interview MBAs. And just to see how many more people, not just are saying I want to go into this space, but it's just in everyone's mind, whether you go into it or not. I mean, that makes me so happy because I just don't think it should be this exclusivity to, like, People who are good at, you know, quote unquote business skills only go into like business, traditional business like that to me is so silly. Like if you're good at strategy, leadership, teamwork, like more of that should be you know, solving all the problems, not just, um, you know, ones in a certain sector. So, yeah, it very much warms my heart to see how much progress has been made. It's awesome. Yeah, it's, it is amazing. We have um, continued interest year after year, more students want involvement. And I think what's what's um, what I'm liking about what I see from the students is that for them, they're seeing this as a source of innovation. They're seeing this as an opportunity to problem solve, but then also really just sort of say, what can we change? What are our assumptions and how are we going to rethink them? And how might that get more money to where it needs to go, make more organizations really effective? It's 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 very much a kind of exciting uh, situation. I tell people I'm a recovering pessimist as a result <laughs> of this job, as a result. Yeah. Well, and I'm struck too, um, for our listeners listening to us live on the radio, we also 
also are pumping the the sound out here at Wharton, so oh, yeah. outside. <laughs> so hopefully our Wharton alumni are also listening to how they can make a difference As with their business schools. they're grabbing pretzels and beers out there. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. 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 So in 30 seconds, remote, what would you, what advice would you give to the uh, the incoming MBAs who are thinking, <laughs> what are they going to do? Ooh, I mean, I would just keep keep your options open and I think really think about, you know, what what makes you what, where do you thrive? Like what makes you happiest in what you're doing? And there are ways to do you know, bring it all together. I didn't think I could take you know, I'm good at math. I'm good at, you know, consulting. I didn't think I could kind of get to where I needed to be around helping people. And I think there's a lots of ways to do it. So just be the creative selves that you are and, and give yourself the patience over these two years to think through. Excellent. Excellent. We will next be talking with Ashley Bittner, who is a principal at Owl Ventures. And we'll talk about education and, again, talking about money going to where it needs to go. That's part of what Ashley does. Absolutely. So, Welcome to the show, Ashley. Hi. Great Hi. to be here. Good to, good to see you again. When did you get in? Oh, I took a red eye yesterday um, <laughs> from San Francisco oh, out, to, man. out to Philly. So. <laughs> Sam, Cheryl likes the red eye, too. And I, oh, gosh, I cannot do it. <laughs> I always say it's my last one. And then a month later, I'll play it again. <laughs> yeah, I guess for me, I get more time in San Francisco. And then I get... Um, you know, I, if I was coming in late anyhow, I would be disoriented. So I think it's it's just part of the yeah. – I get used to it. I always pretend I'm traveling to, like, Europe rather than <laughs> just coming back to Philadelphia. So, Ashley, we we asked Samra, too, when, when you were last on campus. You mm-hmm. actually sort of make it back – not I wouldn't say you regularly, but recently. You, you've been back. I was here uh, in November. I did two uh, events here, one around – I talked to the uh, Impact Investing Group around diligence and how you set that up and how you think about that in early-stage companies. Thank you for and doing then, that. Thank you. Yeah. And then I also did a panel with One Wharton, which was around gender and tech. Um, we got to moderate a panel of women who are investors or CEOs um, and some of the um, challenges and opportunities that that presents. And it was really great, actually. It was a packed house. It's probably the big, one of the most um, full classrooms I've seen at Wharton. So it was really great to see that uh, move towards folks thinking about diversity, inclusion, and tech, and all the, like, uh, just the evolution at Wharton that way. Interesting, interesting. So what is Owl Ventures? Um, and at some point I'm going to make you talk about your path because your path is just perfect. Sure, thank you. <laughs> um, so Owl Ventures, we're a venture capital fund. We're based in uh, the Bay Area. So we have offices in San Francisco and Palo Alto. We uh, focus exclusively on education technology. Um, we invest, we say, post-product market fit when companies have functioning business models and repeatable and scalable sales processes. So in practice, that means leading uh, typically Series A, Series B rounds up to Series C. We usually write checks between 5 and $15 million um, in helping companies, once they're in market and they have that sales process down, really take it to the next level. Um, one thing that's differentiating about us, uh, given this kind of conversation, is that we also think about outcomes and access of the products we're investing in, and we think of that as being core to competitive advantage. So we are a venture fund. We're not an impact fund, quote-unquote, but we think about um, how you measure that effectiveness and who is getting access to that as being drivers of the business itself. Um, we have now $285 million under management. It's one of the largest wow. scaled um, venture funds focused on education. Um, and we are, oh my gosh, 21 investments in since 2014, um, and at a, at a fast clip. So it's been it's been quite a ride, and it's been a really fun uh, fun opportunity. Well, we had asked Samra to talk a little bit about her background and how mm-hmm. she ended up where she did, and I think um, your path was was just so well designed and, so, <laughs> and such a perfect path that I'd love you to talk a little sure. bit about how you ended up where you are. Absolutely. And I'd love to think that I designed it, but it uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of uh, interesting, yeah. uh, an interesting journey, but a, a very fun one. Um, so I'll go backwards. Um, so I've been at OWL since 2015. Um, prior to OWL, um, I was in Obama administration, White House appointee to the Office of Innovation for Education. Uh, which is a mouthful, but I was a political appointee there um, where I was working uh, primarily um, with Ted Mitchell, who was the undersecretary on some of the innovation initiatives from the Higher Education Act, something called Experimental Sites. You can talk about that later if you want. (laughs) But I actually had interned for uh, his previous organization, New Schools Venture Fund, when I was at Wharton. And I got supported by, um, I forget what it's called now, but the um, funding that they allow you to go do a social impact um, focused internship. And there's no way I could have done that if I hadn't had that support from Wharton to Mm. go intern at that fund. I also interned at a tech company at that time and also at a charter school. So I got to really try out all these different innovative paths within education. So I've been doing something related to education for about 10 years now. Um, so Office Innovation, prior to that, I was at the Boston Consulting Group. I was in the D.C. office um, where I had worked 
on some education uh, projects as well as private equity because I, from my experience at Wharton, knew I wanted to eventually go into investing. But at that time in 2013, there just wasn't as much skilled capital in the space. And we can talk about why that is, right. largely related to infrastructure investments from the federal government between 2010 and 2013. Um, but went to BCG, but I had started out my career at, through Teach for America. I taught in the Bronx, some of the great social studies, um, and got really interested from that experience in two things. One, uh, tech and its ability to help scale resources uh, to help teachers better do their jobs and just empower those folks, um, as well as operations and thinking about how you run schools more effectively. Um, so, it, so it sounds like there's been a clear through line to mm-hmm. some degree, but... Teach for America, mm-hmm. to the Boston Consulting Group, yes. to the White House, yes. or to the Department of Education. Yes. White House, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. To, um, to OWL. OWL. Yes. Okay. So about, ed- yeah, something related to education, but practitioner, business, policy. Um, I always thought I was going to be a lawyer. I'm glad I'm not. No offense <laughs> to any lawyers. Um, but uh, it was uh, an interesting path that's kind of, to your point, touched education through. So give us a, an example, if you can, of a specific investment. Because I think that when people think about technology and education, they're mostly thinking, oh, internet access and maybe tablets. Right? Yeah. Let me give – I'll give two um, of our more – two recent ones. Um, so we invest across the education spectrum from early learning through adult learning and career mobility. Um, education for uh, for folks, it touches most of people's lives, right? And it's a very undercapitalized market in terms of venture until recently. So um, ed- education is the second largest uh, spend after healthcare worldwide. It's about a $6 trillion market, and it's slowly moving digital. Um, now it's rapidly moving digital, but it's been taking quite a bit of time. Um, so we, like I said, invest across that spectrum. Uh, one K-12 company, I'll give an example that we led in the fall. It's called Kidum. Uh, Kidum is a classroom operating system. It's allowing teachers to kind of make sense of all this noise that has popped up in the, as the internet goes into school. So what it allows you to do is uh, plan your curriculum, uh, get your standards, plan your actual what you're going to do, um, distribute resources or assignments to students, assess what they're doing, and then analyze on the classroom level. What we saw in the proliferation of content, both free and paid, because of internet, um, is just teachers having a really hard time making sense of it and organizing their classrooms and uh, being able to really pick the highest it's quality an resources. It's an yeah. overload, and it's really hard. And so what they end up doing is going to Pinterest. They call it the Pinterest problem, finding lesson plans, um, or which is not actually a bad thing, but if it's not high quality, it can be a bad thing. And um, just not really having systems to manage all of that. So Kidum mm. is content agnostic, but allows you to manage. What was amazing about this company, one of the fastest growing that we've seen, has gone probably like 70% of classrooms in the U.S. Um, 70%? No, 70%. And very, like, practically no spend on marketing. We let their Series B, Kosla had done their seed in Series A, um, and we're really excited about this company, just solving such an incredible pain point for teachers, and the district is now purchasing because they can now see what is happening in classrooms, which they couldn't really before. Man, it's so interesting because, you know, with the Wharton Impact Investing Partners Group that mm-hmm. you, you've you worked with um, and been a part of, were you part of the... the I worked with education folks there, but wasn't um, in the day-to-day of it because uh, I had a joint degree, so I was traveling back and forth. Got it. But, you know, in the education space, when we look at deals, like, I find so many ed tech companies not solving real problems. Yes. Like they, they think they come in and they're not, mm-hmm. it's not a real pain point. This is very true. A, a lot of times people, <laughs> it's funny. I'll ask folks like, well, who did you design it for? Who's it for? And like a lot of people, I was talking to a, um, an academic the other day who really wants to apply AI to, I forget exactly what they're doing, but I was like, well, you know, who is, who did you solve this? Who has, what's the pain point and who, and, and who, how are you going to sell it? And it was so funny because they just didn't think that way about it. It was much it's a more cool like, thing. here's the thing I want to do, but it wasn't with the thought of like, who are you going to actually sell it to? Right. Um, and whose pain point are you solving? So I think entrepreneurs who really can uh, focus on identifying very clear pain points um, and solving in the way that makes sense to teachers have gotten, like, we've seen our companies just grow incredibly fast. Um, when they've really been able to identify those pain points. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. This is our special alumni reunion weekend show. We're usually live on Thursdays, but now it's Saturday and we're here. And so, Ashley, um, when I think about EdTech 2 or, or selling into schools, mm-hmm. one, the sales cycle is one of the more mm-hmm. difficult things. So I just want to ask sort of a technical question yeah. while you're there. And How, the sales cycle is hard just because they're big and the timing. The mm-hmm. timing of who's... 
like what's your point of entry? Is it the mm-hmm. teacher? Is it the mm-hmm. principal? Is it the superintendent? Parents? Or chief technology mm-hmm. officer? Parents? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you all think about that? Yeah. It, it may not be one size fits all, but yeah, it's not. Um, well, let me talk about um, one change, and that's kind of shifted business models. So. What we saw between in 2010, you know, like fewer than 30 percent of schools had high speed broadband. Now it's close to 95 percent. Um, so it's created this that internet rollout, which was cost billions of dollars from the, the Obama administration, views as an equity issue. Um, plus the advent of low uh, low price devices. So we've seen Chromebooks and other devices mm-hmm. proliferate mm-hmm. in schools. So now you have a system. You have just all new infrastructure, which allows companies. The one I was talking about, Kidom. Um, is free to teachers. It's monetized at the district level, but they're able to, uh, they have so much use among teachers that it's the district then can purchase and it's really driven that direction. Same with a company like Newzella, which is a differentiated literacy platform, content's free to teachers. The premium features a school or district will buy, but it's because it's getting widespread adoption at the teacher at the grassroots level that then you can then sell at the uh, school or district. Mm -hmm. Um, Stepping back, though, the way you kind of think about that, um, this is going to sound really wonky, but... We love wonky. (laughs) The bottoms up usually works for products like that where it's supplementary, it's not core. So you can then think about um, solving, to your point, like who's what pain point, these are kind of teacher-focused products, and you get widespread adoption among those folks, and then you can leverage that to do the school or the district sale. Mm our products now um, are not like being purchased by the teacher themselves, typically. Um, but if you're doing a core curriculum like Accelerate Learning, which is a high-quality STEM curriculum that's just getting widespread adoption, they are going through a traditional curriculum adoption cycle. Um, but they are winning because they're you know, digital first, high-quality content, better like lower price point. Um, can more easily differentiate it, and they're just winning in the adoption. So it, it te- the business model should align with who the user is and if it's a supplementary or core product, and that will dictate the the sales cycle you go through. And so I, a little, I wouldn't say a technical question, Good. but you, you know, you are, you care about impact, mm-hmm. you know, the outcomes of the, the products that you're in or the companies that mm-hmm. you're investing in, but you don't consider yourself necessarily an impact and label yourself as an impact investor per mm-hmm. se. Um, how do you think about impact in, you know, in terms of that value going hand in hand mm-hmm. of, outcomes because that makes sense right mm-hmm. if you're seeing success in learning right. outcomes or whatever mm-hmm. that the outcome might be the you more think you there's do more adoption yes. like you were just talking about mm-hmm. so how do you think about that yeah so the way that we uh it's me on a slightly technical answer as well but the way that we think about it is we want to think about what's the right type of rigor around research for the type of company um and so we actually thank use, god <laughs> <laughs> oh it sounds like a little silly but we don't so we don't try to like roll up metrics across the portfolio because we have some companies that are, you know, consumer facing early learning and then we have, you know, adult learning, career mobility, upskilling platforms that are selling to enterprise companies. And so it doesn't make sense to try to like align those two. Quizlet I mean, has everyone wants to. I know. And Quizlet has like thirty five million users in hundred and thirty countries. We're not doing a randomized control trial, right? Like it doesn't make <laughs> sense. But um, we do use a spectrum, so we think about it um, across four main buckets around like descriptive data, anecdotal, correlational, causal. Some of our companies have done RCTs because it makes sense, but some it will not. And so we also think about this stage. So if you're a Series A company, it's probably not going to be like, you know, you have a couple million in revenue, maybe you're probably not spending $500,000 on an RCT. So thinking about how do you really align the rigor of the research with the type of company it is and um, who they're serving. Um, so we think about pushing them across the, the spectrum, though, to where it makes sense. So each year, how do you get more rigorous? So maybe you did internal, um, you did surveys of parents, and it was internally uh, done. And then the next year, you're working with an outside partner to have external validation. Um, you might have started with a like a descriptive study of the students, and now you're moving up to that correlational where you're actually seeing if this is driving an improvement in reading levels. And the following year, you're doing an RCT. That's as, a really an, smart strategy. Well, and as an investor, mm-hmm. are you fine with capital use, tor- you know, towards those types of activities? Mm-hmm. Or we, we discuss it. We see what's the best. Uh, so certainly, our companies have paid for it. The other thing I'd say that we're very lucky to have is a really great set of limited partners, who uh, some of our investors. Uh, invest specifically because they're interested in thinking about uh, developing this data-driven, efficacy-driven marketplace. And so some of those folks are their LLCs or 
they do philanthropic giving and for-profit investing from their like family office. So it might be both to drive their returns, but also they have philanthropic uh, mission education. So some of those folks have actually partnered with our companies to help fund uh, studies. Mm. Okay. So we see both, but we work with our companies on that. We meet quarterly with these particular limited partners. And then I work with like in June, end of June, I'll be having two of our companies come in and uh, helping them develop proposals around research for their products, and then we'll help figure out how they're going to finance that. So um, I'd say we are very specific to the company. We don't try to roll it up. We think about um, rigor on a spectrum, and we try to align it with where that company is in their life cycle, as well as like just what makes sense for the type of product it is. Cheryl, I'm bursting with joy. <laughs> I, just, I could talk to I'm Ashley sorry, all day. Oh, a little bit clumped. <laughs> It's all Cheryl. (laughs) Well, but I think that's, I I was really sort of admiring the thought about both the uh, progression Mm -hmm. of the impact, but also trying to say, okay, now let's think about what a research project might be and let's find somebody to fund it. That's a great place for philanthropy to play a role, right? Because it's sort of like, this, this is something that can help not just this company, but the entire field. Why wouldn't you want to do that? Yes. Well, that's so exciting. So you're here on campus for reunion. We've been talking about your job, which I'm sure you'll talk plenty of out there, too. (laughs) But what are you most excited about? Oh, it's been really – so I'd say it's just fun to see – I I am very lucky that I get to see a lot of my Wharton classmates, both in work settings and just um, outside of work. We've done a good job of staying in touch. Well, you're in San Francisco, and a lot of people go there, and we have our SOCAP reunion there as well. Yeah, it's so fun. We have a great time. Um, I also think it's just a fun – this is my five-year reunion – uh, which is crazy. But what I also really love seeing is that we're kind of all getting in these places in our careers where folks are kind of decide they've done, you know, because they've kind of decided this is what they want to focus on. And it's been fun to see um, some partnerships happen in a work setting too, where friends are now in places where they're limited partners or they're um, at foundations or, or those type of places. And we're able to really collaborate in this new way as we're getting kind of progressing in our career. So that's been really And that fun. Wharton network really uh, yeah. tapping into it, that, yeah. So, well, so And true. it's really great that now in the Wharton network is this great social impact network. And mm-hmm. that's really, really exciting. It's been really great. It's been very helpful um, in thinking about, I mean, the Wharton grad uh, sent me the latest company I just invested in, uh, which is great. Uh, you know, we have a lot of um, interesting partnerships that are coming from that. So it's been a, it's just a great network. So we're going to have to take a break uh, in just a few seconds. But, give this, you know, I asked uh, uh, Sambro some what advice she would give an MBA. Yeah. I think she did a good job. What advice would you give? Um, so a lot of the – some of the advice I give to folks is a lot of people are interested in venture, and I think that's um, – it's a really fun field. Um, but I think about two things. One, um, I think the longer term, thinking about where you add unique value I think is really interesting. Um, and so what – what is different about your background and your set of skills that you're going to bring to an organization? I think that really helps people feel fulfilled versus like, I want to, I don't know. I think some people don't really view it as like what, what is unique about them that they're bringing to an organization and kind of having a strong narrative and a point of view about that. The other thing um, I'd say is um, really think about what aspects of a job, not like the mission orientation really matters, I think, but also what do you actually do day to day? Like a lot of people and they're like, I want to do venture. I'm like, what is it that you think I do every day? I look at financial models. I help That's hire CFOs. Like I, you know, it's not like I'm just like thinking about, imp- I do think about impact all day, but like there's a lot of technical things that you're doing and it varies a lot fun to fun of what you actually do. Mm-hmm. So I try to also encourage people to think about what kind of tasks do you like and also um, what type of people do you want to work with? Because those type of that will also be really important to thinking about if you're happy in a role versus just the um, mission alignment and or the like sparkliness of the job. Well, so. Cheryl, I'm really glad to know that you're the type of people that I want to work with. <laughs> Thank you so much. And, and that that's a perfect way to take a break. Uh, we're going to take it. We've been talking with Ashley Bittner, a Wharton grad, principal at Owl Ventures. We're going to take a short break and then return to our special reunion weekend. Show of Dollars and Change. Celebrating Wharton's Reunion Weekend, where past alumni have gathered to reconnect and learn. This is a special presentation of Dollars and Change. On Business Radio. Sirius XM 111. Here again are Cheryl Kuhlman and Nick Ashburn. Welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And I'm Nick Ashburn. And we're here for Reunion Weekend for our special uh, uh, alumni show. 
And uh, we are showing love. We're living <laughs> for it. And we're usually here on every Thursday morning, eight to ten. But this is a this is a real special occasion. The campus is all decked out. Alumni are here. Everyone's in a great mood. We're loving it. Absolutely loving it. So let's get to business. Uh, we are here now with Lori Nishi Ura McKenzie, a Wharton grad, ninety three, and this is a long title coming, folks. This she's the executive director of Stanford University's Clayman Institute for Gender Research and the co-founder of the Stanford Center for Women's Leadership. Wow. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome. So uh, I have a feeling that we're going to have to get you on for a longer segment. You'll Absolutely. have to call in. But where do I start? Um, Me Too, everything going on, women's leadership. What do you do at the Claimant Center and, and uh, the Center for Women's Leadership? And, and how, how is it important, right? It is a remarkable time. So the Clayman Institute has been around since 1974. Whoa, okay. But for the past seven years, we've been really trying to think about how to push equality forward, and we've been working really with organizations. So our aim is to figure out how we can do the foundational research that will help change efforts be more effective. We have 50 companies and affiliates program, and we do research inside many of them to diagnose bias co-create solutions and look at what results we can create with managers, not just with the HR departments, but with managers who, what we say is, we help them deliver on their good intentions. Well, and that's interesting because this is research that has a very practical aspect, right? It's sort of like this is information that the companies are using to change how they hire, promote, employ, all of those issues. Absolutely. Are they getting better? Yes. So we take what we call a small wins approach to change. Gotcha which we believe culture changes one small win at a time. So when people ask how do we evaluate change, we say, well, if we have a small wins model, you have to evaluate small wins. So we look at something like performance management, diagnose bias, men and women are being described completely differently, which affects their outcomes. We see if that affects you over time, and then we try longitudinally to see if the change sticks and if it actually advances more people in the organization. So at first, um, so we sit within a university, and we're within the business school. Are you within the business school at Stanford, or is it its own thing? We're at the School of Humanities and Sciences, but okay. we work with faculty from the business school all over. Sure. And and the reason why I ask is, you know, I, I think about you as a Wharton alum. Mm-hmm. And because she is. Because she is. <laughs> because I am. And, and, and where are you using your business skills? Like, what did your, um, you know, what did your Wharton education provide you? But then you think about women in, in business and what some of the topics that you're looking at. So it makes so much more sense and is, is clearer for me now. So what are some of the hot topics that you are, you know, Cheryl sort of spouted off a few, but like, what do you think are some of the hot topics right now that people are coming to you and your center for? We know in the past, diversity inclusion was considered a very programmatic area of a company. You might run an ERG, which is an employee research group. You might do some training. And what we've seen now is that our division, the people we work with, are kind of in crisis management with Me yeah. Too, social pressures, investment pressures, firing of high-profile people. This department, which used to be very programmatic, is now becoming part of the leadership messaging of every organization. And if leaders aren't prepared to have that messaging ready, they're caught off guard. Mm. And the, so, the, you know, the social movement pressures will come to them. So we find it a very vibrant time. And I have, am a hopeaholic. I'm an optimist. <laughs> oh, what did you call yourself earlier? A recovering pessimist. Uh, <laughs> so I don't think I've made it to a hopeaholic yet. Yep. Um, but that's good. Well, and I think one of the things that's interesting that goes a little bit to Nick's point and yours is that now this, there's the risk management side around this. That it, it wasn't, I think, as obvious then. I mean, people sort of thought it was a good thing. You wanted the diversity, saw, saw the positive benefit. But now there's real evidence about some of the serious negative uh, aspects that can happen when you don't do a good job at at maintaining diversity. And so, um, Lori, I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong because we know what can happen when you assume, um, that you have just this wealth of evidence and best practices that now when people are coming because they're probably more in crisis mode, you're saying, you know, we do have these, we can help you. What are some of those conversations looking like? You know, In the past, we worked mostly with hiring managers, and now we're having more executive conversations because leaders want to understand not just what to do, but how does this fit into the way I lead every day? And what we believe is that leaders are curators of culture. Culture is a global priority, but it's an individual accountability. So the all the way down the chain, everyone is role modeling and enacting the culture. What do you need to do not just to make people feel good, 
but to make sure they're not being disadvantaged accidentally, inadvertently, because of stereotypes or bias. So we talk a lot about the research that helps people, I guess, deliver on their good intentions. It, can, I don't know if you can, but can you, is there an, an example that kind of concretizes what you're talking about, um, how you might uh, you know, unintentionally do this in practice? Or, or what, what, what's maybe an example that you see? There's been a lot of those resume studies that are done where they take right. the exact same yeah. resume and they send it out and it gets different responses. So we know cognitively that stereotypes affect how we evaluate. But then if I asked you, well, what do you do every day where this might happen? People have a harder time. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we talk about is, for example, key assignments. Mm-hmm. Do you always go to your go-to person? Probably the first person you come up with in your mind might be someone similar to you. Maybe they went to Wharton with you, and so you always count on them. And we know that that doesn't allow everyone access. So how do you equalize access? We mm-hmm. talk about if you're very clear about the criteria, I'm looking for someone with this, this, and this. And then you think, who are all the people who fit that criteria? And then you look and say, well, who's due for a plum assignment? And then you just do that. It might feel like a really small thing, but to that person you finally picked, it's everything. Well, And especially since you picked them with with good reason, right? You sort of can justify why it's important, right? Somebody's waiting out there. <laughs> we, we have a window for our listeners who are, who are listening to I'm this like live. I'm like a puppy. I'm distracted. Wow, <laughs> people waving. Okay. Well, so um, – we're nearing the end of this, again, this very, very quick segment. Matt, our producer, we're going to have to have her back on to uh, talk more. Absolutely, schedule. What um, what kind of is that the best trend that you're seeing in this area, right? Because we're talking, again, everyone's it's on everyone's mind because of the Me Too, et cetera. What's the, the thing that you're seeing, The maybe not the small win, but the medium-sized win that's making you optimistic? One is that uh, inclusion is becoming part of corporate values. When we talk about what does leadership look like here, We know that inclusion spurs innovation. It's essential for innovation, but it's often forgotten. Mm -hmm. When we see that embedded in the values and then it's questioned, did we include everyone's voices? Did everyone have access to the scrum boarded or do we let the loudest person go to the top? When it's built in and it's not a program that I did and now I'm done, you start to see people having this air of curiosity and innovating themselves and incorporate into what they do every day. So I, yeah. I, I'm really optimistic about that. And I love that point. It's a point we make a lot about the students we're seeing, that when they're thinking about social impact, it's it's a cause of innovation for them. It's sort of making them think differently, seeing what they can change, what problems they can solve. So it really is, I think, it is about being innovative and not feeling an obligation to do something because you have to do something. Yeah. yeah. And, and Laurie, just for your information, in case you didn't know, we, are, we do some work in gender lens investing or investing with a gender lens. So uh, we should definitely have... Uh, an offline conversation about some of that work, too, to see how we can build on the evidence base that you all have out at Stanford. That'd be great. I was with um, State Street Global Investors, oh, advisors, yeah, yeah. when they launched the She Index. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, along with CalSTRS, they're looking at not only being shareholder activists, but also thinking about how do they use that weight to create those organizations to be more inclusive. So how can we have both sides of the coin? Oh, we definitely have to talk. We definitely have to talk. Thank you, Lori. We're going to have to shift to uh, our next guest now, but it's been a real pleasure. And thank you for coming back to campus. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. And this is our special reunion Saturday session. If you want to catch our normal Dollars and Change episodes, you'll be looking for us at uh, Thursday mornings, 8 to 10 Eastern. That's right. And so without further ado, let's go to John Turtelot, who is a Wharton grad from 1998. He's the managing director at Rivermore Energy. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Nick. And we're we're laughing. We're saying welcome because you just barely made it. You had a late plane and rushed over here, but we're glad that you're here. Thank you, Cheryl. So tell us what Rivermore does. So Rivermore is uh, an investor and developer of utility scale and large commercial um, solar systems. Um, in way of example, a recent example, a re- recent project that we did was um, with and for Bentley University in Waltham, Massachusetts. We developed a two million dollar solar asset on the roof of Bentley's brand new forty five million dollar hockey and multi purpose arena. And the great news, Cheryl and Nick, is that the arena this week was named the most environmentally sustainable arena in the United States. Oh, wow. And the first um, hockey arena in the U.S. to be lead platinum. Wow. Because I would assume that that type of facility uses a lot of energy to keep things cool. It uses oh. a huge amount of energy per square foot. But the through significant investment in energy efficiency 
in building design. Um, the university was able to reduce its um, operating costs by 50% and reduce overall energy use by 50% versus a comparable building. And this is a new build, not a retrofit. It's a brand new building, Cheryl, and um, Bentley has been working on this for a number of years, and it's the home of Bentley's Division I hockey team, student events, alumni events, concerts, uh, career fairs. It's, It's really a great facility. Wow. And so, you know, you're here for Wharton Alumni Reunion Weekend. Um, What was your path from getting from being a Wharton grad in 1998 to doing Rivermore Energy? Well, I, um, you know, as Cheryl just said, you know, I'm an I'm an innovator. I really enjoy that. I worked in um, high technology in the Bay Area and in communications for a number of years um, before moving back to um, the Boston area for family reasons. And about 10 years ago, um, I thought that there would be a really good opportunity to to take where solar was currently in the market and to think about how can we really serve some very large clients. And that's a lot of what I learned doing, you know, business management and marketing in in the tech industry. So we partnered up with a couple of big utilities right off the bat, and we were able to get done the first um, set of large projects in New England, and, you know, it was great. And so what are you seeing uh, in terms of adoption of solar? Is it, is it really continuing? Is it, is it at a steady pace? Is it starting to hockey puck up? Yeah, hockey puck. Oh. Yeah, I think, I think it's becoming normalized. And, um, you know, in the built environment, if you want to call it that, buildings, it's really the right way to do it is to, to design it in from the beginning, which right. is what Bentley University did. So I see, you know, huge amount of adoption and some of the concerns, you know, that decision makers would have, you know, 10 years ago when I started the company, Rivermore, um, really have dissipated and people are really interested in saying, how can I really move the needle environmentally and how can I save money? Right. Think about in this higher ed sector that we're in, a lot of universities' cost structures are going up by 5% a year. And inflation or consumer price index has been, you know, since the financial crisis, 2%. I mean, it's a huge disconnect. So. This, you know, doing well by doing good, you know, improve your your climate um, change approach, reduce emissions, and save, you know, significant operating costs. Right. And and I have a quick question on um, energy storage as a service right. that you um, highlight in your work. And I am not an expert in this field, but it is my understanding that that's one of the biggest challenges when it comes to solar energy or maybe renewable energy more broadly. And my my understanding is, let's say if you have solar panels on your house, oftentimes, yes, you're powering your house and excess energy is going back into the grid. And you might get a discount from your utility or something because you're now providing power to them. But you know, it's just going back in the grid. So if it's sort of a standalone solution or anything else, like storage is a huge issue. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, the exciting thing, Nick, is that for the first time, energy storage in term, from the business case perspective is really working. I've been working on energy storage since about 2012, and the initial projects that we did were through grants. But the good news now is that because lithium ion, ion which is a primary um, type of energy storage that's in use right now in cars and homes and businesses, because some of those costs and technologies have improved, um, you can now make the numbers work. So I definitely um, see storage being paired with solar as a very normal thing to do starting now. And, uh, you know, we really have to thank um, a Penn grad in terms of Elon Musk for getting the, for really being a great marketer on that, you know, Um, and he's really gotten that message out there successfully. Um, and people are really turned on to the fact that this is something they can do. And um, it's a way to reduce some of these peak costs. We're building all this infrastructure for the peak periods. I mean, right. a huge percentage of our usage is in, you know, summer afternoons, you know, several times a year or particularly cold times at certain times a day. So energy storage really helps out with that. And so – we have uh, an alum, Emily Shapira, here in Philadelphia, who is working. Um, there is a green initiative, but they're doing a lot of retrofitting for old houses, right? So they're putting solar panels, keeping things clean. Do you do any of the retrofitting? Is it all new for you? We do a huge amount of um, what you would call retrofitting. I mean, one of the projects we did was on a former um, Stride Right shoe factory in the city of Boston that is the home of the Boston Water and Sewer Commission. And it's a, the largest solar array in downtown Boston uh, on a building. Um, but, you know, that was a, a great setting where they had this huge building and it, and it was a perfect roof to do it. So I think, you know, the, in existing buildings, it definitely makes sense. It's not easy yeah, to, to yeah. get solar engineered and, 
you know, um, in place there, but um, definitely doable. Um, and certainly also on, on the ground because we've done a lot of um, contaminated sites, what you would call brownfields, brownfields mm-hmm. right? mm-hmm. landfills. One of them that we did is at the entrance to the city of Boston um, at this huge gas tank, um, the multicolored rainbow tank on the um, in Dorchester in the southern uh, entrance to the city. But we did about eight acres of solar there on heavily contaminated land and that was also in kind of a tidal area, so there was no way it was going to be used for anything else. But it's great for solar, and it goes directly into the grid. It's a huge demand for energy right there. Um, and, you know, it's that that project uh, is the largest one in the city of Boston, and, and um, it just it really cranks out energy into the local grid. Excellent. And, I, you know, we you know we could also talk to you for much longer. We have, you know, unfortunately these abbreviated segments here for Alumni Reunion Weekend. Speed but dating. It is speed dating. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, what what types of advice would you have for incoming MBAs thinking about how they you, – you talk about yourself as an innovator. And, you know, what are the skills that you would, you know, encourage our incoming MBA class to think about if they care about the environment, if they care about social innovation or anything else sort of business and social impact? Well, I would say, um, as as, um, as Cheryl mentioned earlier, I think just this this um, creativity and innovation mindset is really critical in whatever you do, because um, you know the solutions are always evolving. Right. You know there are tons of problems out there to to solve, and I think just from a um, from a values perspective, picking an area that's meaningful, you know, to you, and then figuring out how to really creatively solve the problem. I, I mean, that is just. It's always going to be there. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that uh, you know, our deans continue to uh, point out is that jobs of the future, you're not going to know what they are. So basically you have to have that mindset, the basic skills, the, the sort of commitment to, to rolling with the changes and seeing which, what role you can play in that. Yeah, I was just back for a uh, board of directors training with Mike Useem, who's coming on next. And, um, you know, I was really struck by how he was grounding, you know, leadership in character and principles and in values. I mean, I think that's the that's really the foundation for all of it. And I know that those are some of the things you're working on yeah. at the um, Wharton Social Impact in- Initiative, Cheryl. Yeah, we want we want to get all of our students an opportunity to understand how they can use their their business skills, their mind, their innovation and creativity to solve some really interesting problems. And I think that that's one of the the points of of our educational focus. Well, and we focus too. I mean, it, we want to. I think Cheryl and I are passionate about combating the social or environmental issues sort of as a problem set, but also market opportunities too. We're not just talking about like do the, the right. good thing, but rather there are real market opportunities if you're able to innovate and disrupt. Yeah. Right, and to have a sustainable business, I mean that one that can last for the long run, you need to have a strong business model. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Cheryl Kuhlman here with Nick Nashford, and you'll be listening to Dogs and Change on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111, and we are here for our special reunion weekend, so you'll be hearing some other shows coming up next, and we will have all of the good things coming next Thursday, we'll 8 talk to, to 10 a.m. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.